welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. Good morning. I'm Ben Slowey, and I'm joined today by um, an old friend who was like one of the first friends I ever made in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I've known her since our freshman orientation at UWM, uh, which was about seven years ago now. And uh, she's now um, she's now in grad school um, and she's doing her thesis on uh, Native American ethno and environmental history. And uh, I'm excited to talk to her about what she's doing and why she's doing it. Uh, so Grace Tomasi, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Mr. Ben Slowey. Oh, uh, it is my pleasure. How are you doing? Um, I'm okay. You know, I think all, can, all things considered. Um, it's warm here for late winter, early spring. So I'm in central Iowa and I think the high today is like 58 or something like that. So I'm excited about that. It's clear, it's sunny, it's warm. And um, my fiance and I just finished putting together our patio. So there's the opportunity to go sit outside. So it's like, things are looking up in the world. That is right. Mm -hmm. um, that's like some real like grown shit. You know, I, I, I hate the I hate the word adulting. I hate yeah. it so much. But so let's just put it as grown shit. Yeah, no, uh, I like that a lot. That's great. Yeah. Grown shit. Yep. Mm -hmm. Grown shit. Well, that's exciting. Um, fifty eight. Uh, that's that sounds very appealing. It's mm -hmm. only about, I want to say, thirty eight degrees right now. I think it's getting up to forty three here in uh, beautiful Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Nice. But. Um, you're more inland, so you, you definitely get uh, the heat sooner. Yeah, inland and a little bit further south, so. You know, um, I'm, no, I'm no farmer's almanac. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> but if I were to guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can, I can almost do you one better than a farmer's almanac because my fiance has his degree in meteorology. So I get all of the climate science behind why it gets warmer here and why our trees bud sooner, why our flowers bud sooner, like all of that stuff. So, um, so it's like having my own personal farmer's almanac, but it's it's in the form of a human being <laughs> so. right um mm -hmm. well that's a neat little perk it is um fun fact i so i actually i don't i don't know if i ever told you this but i actually used to want to be a weatherman mm -hmm. uh when i was growing up um i've always loved weather i think weather is very fascinating um I used to watch the Weather Channel for fun when I was little. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I'm in a Facebook group that is called the Cloud Appreciation Society. I love that. That's great. So uh, maybe I'll have to sit down with Theo and uh, really talk um, uh, atmospheric phenomena with him. You sure, sure should, sure shit should. And um, we should try at some point when the world is not falling apart, get you down to go storm chasing with us. I would love. Yeah, we get super heavy into storm chasing in the summer, so. Have you done it already? Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. yep. Wow. I actually, that was like one of the first things, not one, I won't say one of the first things, but like April of my senior year at UWM. So we did long distance, right? For the first year and a half of our relationship. So April of senior year, so that would have been 2018. You know, I go to visit Theo, it's my turn to make the drive to Iowa. And um, he and his friends planned to go storm chasing that weekend I was there. Cause it was gonna be like, the temperature was just gonna rapidly climb in like Southwestern Iowa. It was gonna get to like 90, it was disgusting. And um, so that was like one of the, like the first like, first times it was like we were fresh into dating and I was like storm chasing sounds fun and he's like hey we're going do you want to go so um we went and it ended up being not necessarily like a bus day because it's never a bus when you go storm chasing but the goal for every meteorologist is to find a tornado and for me I'm just like ooh, pretty clouds so I mean it was great and then I drove home and it was like 20 degrees and snowing and I was like this is ridiculous I was literally just in 90 degree weather so yeah Wow, that is quite a polarity. Mm -hmm. um, that is the coolest fucking thing ever, though. I used that's I used to watch like the Storm Chasers um, also growing up, and 
yeah, it's that was that's something that's still to this day on my bucket list. I I want to chase storms. So yeah. uh, take me with you next time you go. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it it happens here. Like, I mean, last spring, last summer, like we would just like you know in the middle of the day, Theo would be like, "Hey, let's stop working and go storm chasing," and I was like all right, I'm here for this. This is great. And we'd get in the car and it would be just the two of us. And like, I would be trying to like navigate and he's been teaching me how to like read, um, well, essentially like weather maps, like where's the wind going and you know, where's the best spot to be. And so I'm, I'm navigating and I'm like talking to our friends who are also chasing with us in different cars and like trying to figure out this like weather mapping system. And Theo is just like flooring it down gravel dirt roads. It's quite a fun time. Yeah, it can be, it can get dangerous. It's very uh, adrenaline uh, Mm -hmm. boosting. Actually, so you're, you're in Iowa. So Mm -hmm. Iowa City, right? Um, No, so actually that's the University of Iowa. I'm at Iowa State University. So I'm in Ames. Mm -hmm. Ames. Okay. I I always get the two mixed up. No worries. That's okay. Ames. So, well, you guys got hit by a really bad derecho last August that yes. apparently got national attention and they're still cleaning up. I was reading about it on Wikipedia that they're still cleaning up to this day, actually. Yes. Um, because there was a lot of like private property damage and people whose like you know barns got tore up and silos and sort of um storage sheds out here and out here in this nice little middle of nowhere that we like to call it Ames, Iowa. Um, but it was okay. So the most bizarre thing about the derecho and sort of how it happened is Theo and I planned a camping trip for that weekend. And we were going up to, um, the, what's called the Porcupine Mountains in the, up in the UP of Michigan. We can get into a whole conversation about whether they're mountains or not, if you want, but (laughs) that's where we were going. And so we, um, we have a dog, we have a little Corgi named Luna. And so for the week we were gone, um, my parents were going to take care of her. So we sort of did like a pit stop at my parents' house and then continued because they live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And then we continued up the next day um, to go up to, to camp. And that was the day the derecho came through. So we're like literally on the like sort of opposite side of the Midwest. We're getting all these text messages from our friends. We're getting screenshots of the weather maps. And we're just like, no one said that this was going to happen. And we have like, you know, okay, we have our patio set up. We're doing the grown shit, you know? And it's just like, we're like, I mean, like I had plants outside, they were ruined. Like we lost like patio furniture cushions or whatever, but it was just one of the most like bizarre was like, well, we're literally almost like out of service in the middle of Wisconsin. So that's just like the way it is. And so then we sort of like talked about it every night when we would like set up our tent, we're like, what do you think is going on in Iowa right now after the this derecho like what's it gonna yeah. be like when we get back so yeah. and thankfully when we did come back it was the like, damage to our apartment was pretty minimal but it was just like we could see like rows of cornfields just blown over and yeah. um you know personal were, like, property damage and all that yeah there were like power lines that were bent and shit because yeah. that was actually like that was kind of a historic storm because it kind of um, sparked a bit of a dialogue about just the ongoing shift in the severity of storms and how like climate change is directly like attributing more more, um, frequent and more severe um, Mm -hmm. events like this because there were like, wind gusts in Iowa like over a hundred miles an hour from that storm and like I mean luckily a lot of folks in the especially in the Midwest have much greater infrastructure than they did a hundred years ago where you know um killer tornadoes are a a bit less um threatening to, Mm -hmm. to civilization because of the infrastructure that technological advancements the agricultural advancements like Mm -hmm. stuff like that has come far away but at the same time storms are getting more and more intense and they're they're like we see um we've seen a a large influx of like f4s and f5s tornadoes in the last couple years um tornadoes are appearing in more unusual places in the u.s 
um it's i mean there's in real time there's just uh massive implications that are only going to get more uh widespread and just more horrible <laughs> if yeah. if like you know we continue um you know the uh warming of the seas and therefore the shift in moisture and front and weather fronts and shit like that like it's all it's all very um cyclical and yeah. uh, unless we do something about it now it's only going to get worse and that's like the i mean theo and i have conversations like this all the time because he studies meteorology he specifically studies agricultural meteorology so he does a lot of crop modeling and stuff like that for specifically climate change um, and sort of climate sustainability. But I, in my own research um, and sort of pursuing environmental history, have come across this theme that the environmental change that we're experiencing is just not urgent enough for people to really decide to make change. Um, so one of the really great comparisons that I like to make is in World War II, Nazi Germany was visible. Nazi Germany was a threat. Um, if Hitler won the war and came to American shores, American way of life would be over the moment that happened. Um, in a similar context, when we started talking about environmental change and specifically climate change in like the 1960s, the things that scientists were talking about that would happen weren't gonna start happening for another 40 years. Um, and so even though there's sort of these devastating effects of larger storms and sort of food shortage and this, this, the sustainability of farming, um, everyone kind of said, well, that's someone else, like that's the future's problem. Yeah. So there's definitely this sense of urgency that just you can't convey about environmental change because it's not happening in real time. I can't wake up tomorrow and, you know, an entire field of crops will be dead due to climate change yeah. like that. And, and so, and that's like the real struggle of studying what I study and trying to convey that message to people. It's like it, yeah. just because it's not happening now doesn't mean that when it does happen that we're gonna be any more ready for it. That's right. So, yeah, right. In the same way that, you know, sociology is gradual and it's, it just, takes place in phases over long periods of time, like cultural and social shifts. Mm -hmm. So do scientific shifts and uh, um, natural shifts too. And yeah. like you said, um, when I was younger, when I was a kid, like I, I mean, I was terrified of like severe weather. Now I think it's awesome, but mm -hmm. I, I was like, I would like get into panic mode like if we if there was ever like you know a tornado warning or like a really bad storm like it was a fight or flight response trigger for myself and mm -hmm. that was tied to an also fear of like conversations about like the world ending from climate change like mm -hmm. i would get just a very um, visceral sense of impending doom whenever mm -hmm. like i heard anything about like oh my god the global warming and like you know the the world's gonna end and shit mm -hmm. like um and my parents would always kind of um uh calm my my uh states by just saying oh it's it'll be way after you're gone like if if, the, if like the the world is ending or if like you know climate change like destroys the planet like it'll be it'll be long gone and mm -hmm. like it's it's not gonna be for centuries that was the, like that was what was told to me to basically like mm -hmm. um, that was like the antidote to my um to just those fears and now i mean i just watched the david attenborough documentary that just came out this past year he's 93 mm -hmm. and he like that whole documentary is about basically he what the earth looks like now versus when it did when he was born and like mm -hmm. when he first started exploring in the 1950s and how we have depleted in less than in like half a century we have like depleted like 20 to 30 percent of the earth's natural sphere and now our earth is at like 35 percent of what it was mm -hmm. in terms of like biodiversity 
And unless we rewild the earth and immediately like incorporate these things that we already know and we already have mm -hmm. like on a global scale in terms of like sustainable, renewable energy and in friendly environmental practices rather than what is convenient for profit, then we're talking within a hundred years, like most species, mo like, like we are gonna wipe ourselves and all mm -hmm. the creatures bigger and smaller than us out within a hundred years. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, <laughs> so it's nice in Iowa, huh? It's, yeah. it's warmer in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, we're excited about warmer weather at the beginning of March. These right. are all good and, things. And this yeah. just kept, it's just kept like, uh, culminating in the this big but i mean but i mean it is all kind of tied together if we're really getting technical yeah and i mean i think the other important thing to note too is that the recent sort of scholarship that comes out of environmental history so um you know what what's the more respected people in the field are sort of talking about and really pushing for is for so long we've treated the environment and man and mankind humankind separate as two separate entities and so this this narrative this narrative of human human interruption i guess is a good way to say it on the environment has caused these consequences and it's like but is is human really separate from nature are we just sort of the dominating force that is changing everything right now and um that sort of puts a, a new perspective on changes have happened you can't undo those changes. One of the really great examples is um, a guy, his name is Richard White, and he wrote a book called, called The Organic Machine, where he essentially talks about a river out in Washington, it's the Columbia River, and how it's gone through so many phases of human change. I mean, we're talking like nuclear energy all the way down to like the noodle making industry for some Asian immigrants who live out there now. Um, and how you can't undo those changes, but you have to recognize that this so-called built environment now needs to sustain both the environment that it's a part of, the natural world, and hu the humans that have come to rely on it as a, as a source of, of income, as a source of life. Um, so that at least helps turn aspiring historians like me away from the declensionist narrative of like it's doom it's gloom we're all gonna die like it's over that sort of thing so that's really popular and that's really easy to do but it's also recognizing that just because this this kind of really negative change has happened doesn't necessarily mean that it can't inform our future decisions and that we can't make that sustainable both for nature and for for humans so yeah, there's, you know, there's that sort of opposite side of the story, yeah. too, that has at least helped me because I, I was totally in your position when I started grad school. I was like, it's doom, it's gloom, it's over, we're all going to shit. And um, reading stuff like that and sort of incorporating that into how I study and how I work has really helped me at least feel some sense of hope that yeah. if there are enough of us that are talking about it like this, that there that changes have happened and these changes have not been good. And the people that have made those decisions and changes need to be held accountable. Yes. But at the same time, this is the reality that we live in. And so how can we make it sustainable right. for the natural world and for humans? Yeah. And we're going to get a little bit more into that. Cause yeah. like, like you said, yeah, like doomsplaining is it's in the same way that, you know, people are like, performative and activism on like social media for example where it's like mm -hmm. you you where it's like it's really easy to point out all the flaws and the evils and the just the injustices in the world but like what are we going to do about it mm -hmm. the solutions are that those are the only things that are going to move us forward so that like we don't have to keep having these circular conversations constantly and over and over again and uh, adopting them as an objective reality rather than like a subjective opinion mm -hmm. and right what you said earlier about how like tying human like whether human is distinct like mankind is distinct from nature or if it's also part of it mm -hmm. i think that ties directly into like when it becomes a political issue Mm -hmm. this idea of climate change and this idea of like 
how much of it is caused by mankind and like what our role is in changing things. Mm -hmm. And so that is what we're going to talk about in a little bit, as well mm -hmm. as all the other things you study. But uh, let's, um, let's take it back just a little bit. So, sure. um, so Grace, so tell me, so at UWM, what, what did you get your degree in again? History. History. Yep. Okay. I guess like, yeah, like what kind of enticed you to go that route? Like, did you know you were going to do that? Like when you entered college? Um, I had a pretty fair idea that that's what I was going to do, but I came in and I was like, I don't want to make that decision and have that be the structure that it's just, I'm sort of forced into. So I was like, I'm going to go in undecided. I'm going to say I'm undecided. I'm going to take some history classes. I'm going to take some journalism classes. Remember we had some, class together. <laughs> uh-huh. Some jams classes. Yeah. And then, um, but I mean, pretty much after my first semester, I was like, this is what I'm passionate about. So um, I attribute that a lot to my high school history teacher who really inspired in me, or at least instilled in me, the notion that history is less about the who and the what and more about the how and the why. Um, so he really emphasized the story making process that goes into history, which I think gets overlooked a lot in terms of, you know, the, the trivia, what do you know, how much do you know? Um, and he, when he would teach, he was so vibrant and clearly cared about the things that he was teaching us about, whether or not he was telling us about, you know, his understanding of the ancient world of like ancient Egypt and Greece and whatever, or if he was talking about, you know, the, the civil war um, in the United States history, like all of those things were sort of all encompassing. And he put so much effort into making sure that history was interesting to learn. Um, and actually he enforced as a punishment, you know, worksheets in a textbook. He was like, no one wants to pay attention. You all want to goof around. Fine. Here's a textbook. Here's a worksheet. I don't want to hear talking for the rest of the class. Yeah. And that was a bummer. Like that was the worst thing that could ever happen when we were learning in high school. And so um, that really started my love for history. And so pretty much like after my first semester at UWM, I was like, history is it for me. History is where it is. Um, but the thing I really knew sort of from the beginning is that I never really wanted, I didn't want to go and teach history. As much as my teacher inspired me, I was like, I, I just don't have that kind of personality. I gravitate towards those kinds of personalities, but I'm not the type of person that loves to show a ton of energy. Um, I'm just, I'm introverted that way. It takes a lot for me to be social. And so I was like, I don't think that teaching is for me because I don't know that I'd be doing the best for my students. And so it was a lot of me going back and forth in, in undergraduate of if I pursue a history degree, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to go to graduate school and try to like formulate my ideas there? Am I going to go to law school and sort of take all of these like really great critical thinking and writing skills that I now have and put them into action by getting a law degree? Um, so that's, that's where sort of everything kind of started for me was if I'm, I'm going to get this degree, I want to know the how and the why I want to be able to tell great stories about the things that I care about. Um, and how do I put that into action? What does that actually look like for me at the end of the day? So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, the, I think, uh, a very instrumental part of anything really like uh tickling your fancy as they say uh, -huh. uh is the teachers it's mm -hmm. it's who can make an otherwise um tedious and uh, research driven mm -hmm. uh, topic how can they make that interactive and in interesting and uh, intriguing yeah. and uh, yeah i mean that's i think that's why like i ended up finding myself in broadcasting and journalism like in my time in high school and college too so uh so with that like um beyond uwm uh mm -hmm. beyond college so um how how did you like decide and sort of like 
pinpoint um, your your next step and your focal point? Yeah, so, um, so like I said, Theo and I started dating. He's an integral part of like most of these stories at this point. So Theo and I started dating um, the fall, yeah, November of my senior year of um, college. So that would have been November, 2017. And I remember, point, I remember I was like, who is this guy? Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I was kind of like, who is this guy too? Where did he come from? And why did I have to go all the way to Iowa? But anyway. Where did he come from? Like, how did you guys meet? <laughs> okay, so I guess that's a good place to start too. So um, I don't, so I, I was an RA at UWM and one of my coworkers, he was a year older than me um, and he, he graduated. We, sort, we, we stayed close, um, kind of, um, by close, I mean, like we talked every so often um just because like he he was like he was a year older so he had graduated sort of moved on I studied abroad so like we just we didn't get to interact all that much um in my junior year so when he graduated he decided to go to the meteorology program here at Iowa State and I came back from studying abroad started my you know new semester back at UW-Milwaukee and was like, hey, you know what? You're in Iowa. I've never been to Iowa. Um, I'm looking for a change of pace. Like, can I come visit? And so I had grabbed another one of my friends. We'd all been coworkers um, as RAs. And um, we, the two of us drove to Ames and stayed with my friend. And the other thing that was really exciting is that UWM doesn't have a football program. So I had never gotten to experience college football and yeah. never felt like I needed to experience college football. I actually had a friend who played on the club team. Oh, UW. there you go. Yeah. He took it so seriously. He was like, we are a real team. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Was, and then he like quit after like three months or something. <laughs> I mean, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, um, so there was a football game that weekend and I was like, man, you know what? Let's like tailgate. Do you guys tailgate? Like, what's that like? Turns out it starts at like 630 in the morning and I was not about that. Eggs and kegs as oh. they say man ridiculous so anyway we go to the tailgate and that's where I met Theo because Theo was in the same he's in the the agro meteorology program but they're they're very connected here at Iowa State and so um he came and there were a bunch of their friends there and we were like making eyes at each other and doing the small talk thing and then one of his friends showed up and he went to introduce everyone to his friend and he gets to me and he's like um this is what's your name again and I was like really like we've been doing this flirting thing for the past like two hours and you don't remember my name so I pretty much decided at that point I was like he's gonna remember my name like that's just gonna be the way it is like I think he's cute I think he's funny he's gonna remember my name and so that's how we officially met and then I didn't go to the game but we all met up afterwards to celebrate the the Iowa State Cyclones win that day and we went out to the campus bars and which was a whole new experience for me because they're very different than going out on like Water Street or Brady in Milwaukee. Yeah. And um, yeah, we basically spent like the whole night dancing with each other. So it was like that weekend, right? It was where we met. And then two weeks later, he actually came to Milwaukee and then like officially we started dating. He like asked me to be his girlfriend and all that cheesy corny shit. So well, yeah, adorable. it was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, and then I threw him for a loop because I brought him to KT Formal. I was like, here, we just started dating. Let's throw you into my sorority formal. So I, so we started dating and I was still really into like undecided. I was like, I am going to get this degree. I'm going to, you know, finish it out. And then what? And so, um, I mean, he was a really pivotal part of that decision-making process of like, if I go to law school, this is what I'm looking for. I'm specifically looking for environmental law at that point I knew I was like invested in the environmental aspect of whatever it was I was going to do next and I was like but I don't know if I really want to commit the next three years like the caveats with law school is that you pour your heart and soul into law school and then you come out and then you have to pay for law school and I was like I do not want a corporate law position I do not want to work for civil like I do I just these are things I don't want to do like when I get out I want to be able to start doing the things I'm really passionate about and I don't want to be drowning in a pool of debt so 
eventually it was like, I'm, I'm not coming to a decision. So I should try to find something else to do to fill my time. And I was like, I could just, I got a job at Stone Creek coffee, which was glorious. And I was like, I could just be full-time barista while I figure it out. Um, but I started to do some, some chatting with my siblings. Um, my oldest or my second oldest brother and his wife did, um, teach for America for two years. And my sister was also in AmeriCorps. So I was like, is this a good like post college option since I don't have a good direction? And so I actually got a job through AmeriCorps working for a program called City Air. And so, I mean, City Air is, is nationwide. Actually, I think it's technically international. Um, but it, it, it's an AmeriCorps program that essentially works with um, inner city youth in the schools, particularly in the schools that are really under-resourced and underfunded. So um, that was one of the hardest experiences of my life because not only did I come face to face with what it actually meant to have white privilege in a school where 98% of the kids were black um, or Latino and um, really just coming to terms with the fact that there are parts of the world that I just I I've never experienced and never would experience if only because I'm white and so um, as much as I hated the early mornings. I mean, I was getting up at six o'clock to be at school by 7.15 before most of the teachers were there. And then I was like, our, my team was there until six o'clock at night when most of the teachers had left. And um, just some of the administrative issues of our team leader left and our manager went on maternity leave and never came back. And so it was like me and my two coworkers like manning this team at a high school um, that doesn't have, it had two sports, one for boys and one for girls, had no after school clubs, um, had no really real tutoring of any kind. And the, the, the method of discipline was to like to, to suspend students. It took such an emotional toll on me to come face to face with, um, students who just either just wanted to be there to learn and were in environments that were not conducive to learning or students that just have so many other things going on in their lives that it became hard for them to learn. And so it was, it was a lot of learning. It was a lot of growing. It was a lot of me thinking that I should be offended about something and then realizing that I have no business being offended about something like that. Um, And yeah, just like the really crucial lesson of, of white privilege um, because I experienced it every day. So it was that sort of experience of of all of that that really sort of gravitated me towards, I have this degree in history, I'm still really passionate about history and the conversations of systemic racism and oppression um, motivated me to try and use what I'm passionate about to add to the story to add to the research, to sort of add to what's been going on. And originally I thought I wanted to tackle some some black history, some African-American history, particularly like groups of people that moved to places like Milwaukee. Um, But I ultimately settled on um, pursuing some native American history because that really coincided with environmental history. Um, It coincided with my own personal experience growing up in a place that is heavily influenced by Native Americans, but they're almost never talked about where I'm from. And um, really trying to, to figure out how all of that would fit together in some sort of narrative. So that's when I decided to apply for graduate school. And I specifically targeted environmental history programs. Um, And Iowa State just so happens to have a really great environmental history program. Um, And so when I was accepted here, um, I moved here in August of 2019, started my studies. And that's when Theo and I officially ended our long distance relationship and got to move in together and spend time together and do all of the things that people get to do so <laughs> yeah yeah uh, like get a dog yeah like get a dog right it's a so yeah little Luna. i think milwaukee is like 
in what is one of like the poorest major cities in America is my understanding. I believe mm-hmm. obviously it's one of the most segregated as well. We talk mm-hmm. about that all the time. And, you know, like being so like humbled by that experience of like what these kids don't have and how they're basically like, there's that school to prison pipeline, you know, mm-hmm. there's the, the, there's just this like ceiling of their success that's constantly imposed on them because, you know, they don't have arts programs or sports programs or, you know, proper, proper public transportation that allows them to truly achieve and succeed. Like people like, you know, depending on where you grew up, like yourself, myself, like where those things we take for granted uh, Mm -hmm. growing up and uh, as opposed to being in like inner city Milwaukee, like wanting to like build from that experience into something that you're actually like doing a thesis and devoting your studies to is a very beautiful thing. I think that's, that's, like the best that's like the best thing you can possibly do with that you know with that prolonged exposure and experience and as we're, ta- we're talking about so you're um you're talking about native american history and how you ultimately decided on that specifically how this region of the u.s is the impact and the influence the cultural influences of mm-hmm. of native american folks um is like so disgustingly overlooked in little things like the fact that most of these town names in Wisconsin are mm-hmm. named from native are derived from native American terms. Um, and it's inhabited by so many Trump loving God fearing white people. Yeah. <laughs> like mm-hmm. there's quite a, a paradox there. Yeah, And um, we, I don't know if you did, but, you know, I grew up having to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag every single day mm-hmm. um, in elementary, middle school, high school. And uh, like we had to know all 50 states. Yeah. Like that was we had to know all the capitals like we we had to know, like we basically had to just be able to point to any state on the map and be able to identify it mm-hmm. by a certain point. And what about, you know, the indigenous tribes that inhabited all these massive swaths of land Mm -hmm. in every square inch that's now inhabited by the U.S. of A. Um, Like, we are never, like, we've never given, like, batted an eye at maps like that to study, like, what stolen land we live on. Yeah, Yeah. and I mean, this is something that... Is, is at the forefront of basically everything that I am working on right now is particularly, so I'm from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is Northwestern Wisconsin. Um, it's about four, well, four hours if you drive my parents' speed limit, realistically like three hours if you drive everyone else, um, Northwest of Milwaukee. And um, Eau Claire is actually a French word for clear water. And the, it was named after the Eau Claire River, which then flows into the Chippewa River. And the Chippewa is a anglicized version of the Ojibwe people. So Ojibwa and Chippewa end up being, they refer to the same thing, uh, but in government documents, because they could better spell Chippewa and they could pronounce Chippewa, that's what comes across in the archives and the documents that are saved and talking specifically about these people. Um, but the, what I've, what I've really come to sort of appreciate is that every Native American tribe, every Native American band has its own interaction with white people that is inherently separate and different from every other tribe and band. So take, for example, um, the Menominee, which is on the Eastern side of Wisconsin, they have a county that is their reservation and their their land officially, um, in terms of the treaty, stops at that county. The Ojibwe, on the other hand, um, negotiated off-reservation treaty rights. So they have these established reservations, which is is an issue in and of itself, but then they are able to leave those reservations and go hunt, and they're able to go gather, and they're able to go fish in their traditional way of life that they've come to sort of accept and understand 
um, as part of their history. And they can do that whenever they want. And this becomes an issue in like the 1980s when the Ojibwe people show up at the various lakes that they spearfish. And now those lakes are privatized because there are people with lake homes on the shores of these lakes. And so it becomes this big issue for tourists and for people who own land um, along these lakes that these people just get to show up whenever they want and harvest fish and um, essentially take what, what these white people view as their, their own resources away from them. Um, and there's this big argument that, you know, they're actually the, the Ojibwe people come in and they're spearfishing lowers pop, like fish populations dramatically and um, they don't ask permission before they come on anyone's land. They just, they just sort of show up. And the Ojibwe basically say, these are off-reservation treaty rights. This is what was agreed upon with the federal government. So, um, and it gets into this, this bigger issue as well of the state of Wisconsin is like, you are on state lands. And so therefore we don't have a treaty with you and your treaty then is null and void. Mm -hmm. um, but the important thing to remember about that particular circumstance is that the native peoples have sovereignty because they were treated by the federal government. So it's not the state of Wisconsin that makes treaties with Germany. It's the United States of America that makes treaties with Germany in the same way that is the United States of America that makes treaties with the Native Americans. So it's, it's, a, it's packed full of, of those sorts of circumstances of violation of treaty rights, um, a, a, a challenge to tribal sovereignty to say like that you have to be confined to your reservation, you have to be confined by state and federal law um, as if you are not a separate nation. Um, and then you weave in systemic oppression and systemic racism of a people who, you know, are coined noble savages with the understanding that they can never fully be white or they can never fully be American. And so there is a lot of sort of connections in the history of all these interactions that take place um, that for the longest time have been treated very separately from, from the land, from, from the land that the, the indigenous people live on. So that's part of, like a huge part of what I'm doing with my thesis is to say the separation in the narrative of sort of Native American history separate from environmental history, separate from the rest of social history of Northern Wisconsin and Michigan and Minnesota where the Ojibwe people are is inherently wrong because they view themselves sort of as a one cohesive unit with the land and with their white neighbors um, and with the industry that's going on at the time. So yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of a lot to unpack. So I, right. I mean, I could, I could talk about it for hours. So. Oh, totally. But essentially like the state is kind of like primitizing their practices, mm -hmm. sounds like. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, but also the state, I mean, there, there's a huge, essentially there's a huge push um, after the 1880s to essentially Americanize the Native American, to Americanize the indigenous people. Right, Western and, and Westernize the world. Like that, right. yeah, 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 yeah. And so, um, and the way that they try to do that is through the allotment process, which essentially there's reservations established for most, if not all Native American bands in the United States at this point. And then Congress is like, we don't really wanna keep paying the annuity payments that you've been promised in your treaties. And so we want to give you the opportunity to become American and to make your own money and sort of get off our payroll. Um, which inherently, again, it violates the treaties that the United States made with these people. And so with the Ojibwa in particular, I mean, the, the, the national emphasis is get the Native Americans to farm. Uh, but this is particularly true with the Ojibwe people because they cut, like the, the, the government contracted timber companies and cleared out the forests. And then clearly what you do after you chop down all of the trees is you farm that land. And that's environmentally problematic because that soil is not good for farming. That climate is not good for farming. We're literally talking like just south of Lake Superior. It's 
cold as fuck up there. Okay. Like, so that it's, that's just not necessarily possible. And then there isn't another option for the Ojibwa after that. It's like you farm or you starve. Right. So that is You either have to like assimilate Mm -hmm. or perish essentially. Very much so, very much so. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it's inherently racist. Um, It's inherently oppressive. And it's a dismissal of an entire group of people's culture um, yeah. to say that it's it's not American, therefore it's not good enough for us. Mm-hmm. And it's startling to me, you know, sitting here in, tw- in um, 2021, that that's still the case. And the time period I'm talking about is over a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, like American exceptional- exceptionalism is a disease in itself, but especially, but from within, mm-hmm. American exceptionalism from within. Mm-hmm. It's just another conversation that it's crazy how closely in proximity um, these, like these issues and these erasures are occurring, but mm-hmm. we're not educated about them. Yeah. Or like their or their culture and their history is just massively minimized, um, yeah. in order to, you know, push the 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 narrative that suits you know the uh, U.S. expansion and whatnot. And yeah. so, um, and like you said, there is so many factors and facets that um, that are both that both touch on like the touch on the sociology, the history, the politics, the philosophy, in terms of like what you're studying right now. Mm-hmm. And you know, you have a thesis that you're uh, writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, yeah, I guess like, where are you at right now? Like what yeah. are you working on? Yeah. So um, like you said, writing my thesis. Um, and because of the wonderful conditions of being in a pandemic. Um, I have been pretty limited on my ability to go and research in other places. Um, So the plan initially um, with my advisor this time last year was over the summer, I was gonna go to Northern Wisconsin. I was specifically going to go to Ashland and um, see if I could parse through um, the Great Lakes Indian Agency hate the fact that we still call it that, but that's what it is, um, uh, archives. So um, that's the newest iteration of the Native American sort of liaison um, uh, in that area. So I was gonna go there and do research up there. And then I was also gonna be spending a lot of time in Madison going through state archives. And if I could make it work um, and there was any sort of availability, I was actually going to go and meet with um, some, well, try try to see if I could meet with some tribal members of the Bad River Band of Ojibwa, which is um, just, that's the neighboring reservation with Ashland. And um, they have some tribal archives as well. So actually get to meet with, talk with tribal members, get their perspective on stuff, do a little bit of anthropology. Um, and then COVID happened. So all of my research plans went entirely out the window, which was just a great time. So I've had to make do with what I can find online and what I can get, you know, delivered to me at no cost to myself because I am a graduate student and they pay us enough to live and that's about it. Um, so, which I think is where we're all at at this point, but, um, so that's been my biggest struggle is what can I find online and what do I have to make do without? So I'm in the writing phase of my thesis. I'm uh, working on a project for a research seminar, which will be one of the chapters of my thesis, which essentially talks about um, the Ojibwa experience of rural and what rural Wisconsin actually means. Um, and so that's that's where I'm at. Um, in an ideal world, when you go through programs like this, because um, I'm on an MA to PhD track program, um, you would write your thesis at the end of your second year. So I'm at the end of my second year. You would defend it in the spring. 
um, and then you would just sort of move on to your PhD work. Um, and that's how most master's programs work is you're done in two years. Um, but because of COVID, because of all the sort of research blocks that I've had, um, most me and most of my cohort who are trying to write a thesis right now are not going to be defending them until fall. So essentially I'm writing now, I'll be writing throughout the summer, I'll be sending drafts to my advisor um, and getting ready for a defense in early September. So that's where I'm at now. And it's been a really interesting ride of just coming to terms with the fact that this project that I originally set out to do is not gonna be done the way I thought it was gonna be done. And I just have to accept that and move on and start working towards my dissertation, so. There's people that still haven't done that, accepted the way things are and I know. adapting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, you know what? I don't need a mask and I can go out to eat whenever I want. And if someone won't serve me because I'm not wearing a mask, then I get to throw a fit about it. I'm like, please. Yep. Um, our governor removed our mask mandate. And so um, we- We live in a really bad state for that. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting time. Well, at least, you, at least they got rid of, uh, what what's that fucker's name? Steve King? Yes. Or, yeah, mm -hmm. at least- yeah, we, we did vote him out because essentially he got kicked off of all of his committees and wasn't doing anything for the state of Iowa anymore anyways. But, um, and that's his personality aside because that's what most people here were, were concerned about. But um, but yeah, we have, a, we have a governor who removed the mask mandate. She removed the mask mandate even before Texas did. And then all of our bars have been packed since. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting time. And Texas just got rid of theirs too. I know. So the SpongeBob meme of "Hey Patrick, what am I?" Yeah, right. Is great. It is glorious. Stupid. <laughs> no, what's, I'm Texas. What's the difference? <laughs> yeah, man. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I like, like you said, we could talk about this kind of stuff for hours, but I really appreciate you coming on in the show today to give yeah, an idea, to give a, um, just kind of like a well-rounded, uh, like synopsis of like what you've been studying, why mm -hmm. you've been studying it and like how it's going to help, um, provide solutions as we were talking about before to like how we can preserve not only our land, like our land and our environment and like how specifically like, you know, uh, mass production and private ownership has decimated and depleted said land, but also, you know, preserving the history of, of Native American tribes that are like have have been like hanging by a thread of having their cultures erased for mm -hmm. such a long time. Yeah. And, and their perseverance and their plight you know, still going strong today. You're, you're working on some really neat stuff. And I, I do, I do look forward to like, you know, furthering conversations with you, touching base on like what you've been working on and, yeah. you know, and just learning from you because it sounds like there's, there's, uh, there's a, there's a lot that um, you've not only like um, researched, but also that you're up, you, you're applying and will continue applying. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think if there's any like advice of places that I started for this type of thing is I reflected on my own personal experiences. So the experiences with City Year, but also like growing up, why was it that I lived just south of Chippewa County, but was never really taught the history of the Ojibwa people that that county is named after and that river. Um, and then, I mean, as much like as cliche as it is, because this is like what I do basically all day, every day is I read. Um, we just actually had a presentation from a historian named Daniel Immervar, who has written for Time Magazine and the Washington Post. And he explored like publishing through magazines instead of like straight up publishing a book. And he um, gave a presentation on his book, How to Hide an Empire, which is all about the US empire, um, which I think is applicable both to what we've been talking about today and some of the broader questions of where do you start and what do you do about it? Because um, he does a really good job of literally mapping together 
the US empire and what that actually looks like and why we were hiding it when places like Great Britain were championing their or championing, champ, champ, championing, there we go, there's the word, uh, their empire and, and you know, sort of their, their conquering feats. So um, those would be, I guess, if anyone is, is wondering and wants to know, that's, those are the two places that I think right now for me are really inspiring and motivational in facing a lot of this stuff and trying to figure out what do we, what do I as a 24 year old woman who's white and has a very, has had a very white experience in life, yeah. what do I do? You know, how, how do I contribute to both to the problem and to the solution? So exactly like the, like the way you phrase that is like perfect um, because there, we are inherently contributing to so much problematic and otherwise like backward thinking shit in our personal lives, our professional lives, like our virtual lives and the internet. Like th these are things that we really need to like recognize our privilege in just many areas. And mm -hmm. like the simplest thing, like I would say to somebody about that, like about coming to terms with your privilege is just like, not, not like, centering your experience as the norm mm -hmm. that's like kind of the bottom line in in a lot of ways and that how just because you've never had to worry about something doesn't mean it's not an issue yeah and that's a good place to start and if with that open of a mind um you will you'll just be so enlightened by what you've been taught versus what needs to be retaught. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. So on a way out. Grace, what keeps you up at night? Man, what keeps me up at night? Well, mostly is what I'm doing worth it and is what I'm doing enough. I think those are the two big questions that always keep me up at night. Well, there's some rather existential inquiries, but given mm -hmm. your, re given the mm -hmm. sensitivity and the urgency of your research, I, I totally recognize what you mean. Yeah. Uh, on a lighter note though, what puts you to sleep? What puts me to sleep? Um, most recently it's been the knowing that I have my dog sleeping next to me, mm -hmm. that has been a real comfort. Um, she likes to make funny snoring noises, which just makes me feel good. Um, and I can usually always go to sleep if I just roll over and I'm cuddling with Theo, honestly. Like it's, it's knowing that I have a partner who is supportive of what I do, basically no matter what happens with it. And, um, having comfort that, you know, someone will be there for me when I wake up in the morning. So. So wholesome. Very wholesome. And even more, like if there's like a big storm and you get scared, you can just hold on to him and he'll tell you exactly, he'll dissect the storm for you. <laughs> I wish that were the case, but the number of times that he never wakes up during a storm is almost always. I the, I'm the one that wakes up and I try to wake him up and he's like, what, what's going on? I'm like, it's storming. He's like, okay, passes back out. He <laughs> doesn't remember it the next morning. I was like, okay, well, it was a big See, deal. Let me tell you. Honestly, I love, I like storms at night. Um, I love storms at night. But just the, the, the thunderclaps that jolt you awake are terrible yeah. um and we we get a it was a really stormy summer here last summer yeah so there's a lot of that mm -hmm. uh, anyway thanks again grace for being yeah. on the show yeah it's thanks lovely. for having me it's great to see you and it's wonderful to hear from you like yeah you know you're somebody that i know that no matter when like even though we go a long period of time without talking i know whenever like, we do pick it back up it's always a joy and uh, just awesome, just great to hear um, how you're, you know, striving to make a real difference in the world. So. Yeah, I'm doing my best anyway. So thank you, I appreciate it. And it was fun being here and being able to talk about this stuff, so. Of course. 
Um, for everyone watching, uh, hope you pulled some uh, good food for thought about, um, about the how and why of um, history and how we got here. These are all just great places to start. Mm -hmm. that. Thanks yeah. for watching, Mr. Nice Guy. See you next time. Thank you.